Speed up with podcast speed up. Hey everyone, a few announcements before the show. First, this episode featuring Nassim Nicholas Talib is immediately followed by a bonus segment. The bonus segment features Talib and Brian Kaplan talking about Kaplan's latest book, The Case Against Education. So that will play right after the conversation with Talib. And of course, if you haven't checked out Brian Kaplan's conversation with Tyler, it's also right there in your podcast app. Second, you Talib fans will know he wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, which is about things that gain from disorder. Audio recording systems do not gain from disorder, and ours failed for this live event. That means you're going to be hearing a backup audio recording, which unfortunately is of lower quality. If you're having trouble following along with the audio, I'd encourage you to click in the show notes to the transcript and enjoy the conversation that way. Lastly, this episode does contain some explicit language, so if you're listening with kids around, you might want to pop in the earbuds for this one. We'll be back in two weeks with Tyler's conversation with David Brooks. It sounds much better, I promise. Conversations with Tyler is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, bridging the gap between academic ideas and real-world problems. Learn more at mercatus.org. And for more conversations, including videos, transcripts, and upcoming dates, visit conversationswithtyler.com. We're very honored today to have with us the great Asim Nicholas Talib. I'm reminded of the words of the Hall of Famer Ernie Banks from Chicago, who used to always say, let's play two, when there was the possibility of a doubleheader. So uh, Asim Nicholas Talib has been gracious enough to agree to this dual event, where first he and I will converse and then he will talk with Brian Kaplan. And just to be clear, as always, this is the conversation with Nassim Nicholas Talib I want to have, not the one that you want to have. So, <laughs> to start with a very basic question, on page seven of The Black Swan, you mentioned the 1975 Lebanese Civil War as having been a black swan of sorts. And if we think back to the earlier history of the region, the growing role of the PLO in the country, the end of the Eisenhower Doctrine, which meant maybe the U.S. would not intervene, the prior conflict in 1958, ongoing differences in birth rates with more Muslims being born. Wasn't it, in a sense, actually fairly predictable and not a black swan? How do you see the history of your own country in this way? No, it's going to surprise everybody. It might have been predictable, but not on that scale for several reasons. The first one is that nobody understood the effect of modern weapons, because previous conflicts were more local, as the first, you know, and more confined. You didn't have uh, artillery, and uh, and then things died down quickly. And then you have another thing, is that these idiots brought in the PLO and after 1973 to Lebanon, as a way that Lebanon wants to stay neutral with Israel, sort of like neutral, but engaged and say, okay, you guys can fight from here, but we're not going to fight Israel. So, and, and, and they didn't realize that these guys were First thing you know, to do is try to take over the place. So the imbalance came not from within, but came from a huge number of uh, armed Palestinians in Lebanon that disrupted the balance and caused immediately as a reaction the Christians to go and you know, get, get on. What's the role of the Phoenicians in your thought? Well, I mean, the, 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 there's a recent thing uh, circulating that Phoenicians didn't exist, and it's not true. <laughs> uh, I think. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, visibly, they, they, of course, they didn't call themselves Phoenician, but Canaanites, just like the Greeks didn't exist. So then you had some kind of confederation. You had occasional confederations. 
uh, among them, among the states, the small little and state and city states with their hinterland. And, um, and then we know that uh, they uh, uh, genetically, the Phoenicians seem to have come from Anatolia, largely. And they're, uh, you know, Anatolia is the same place that we came from. So there is a connection that was, which was discovered a year ago. And maybe in five years from now, we'll have a clearer view of rewriting history based on ancient DNA. And, and, but now we understand people. Why was it that Phoenicians really sort of like had some kind of great working relationship with the Greeks? Looks like they, they were similar, maybe the same. They're the same uh, grandparents this way. Uh, and also, there's some mysterious thing. Why is it that the only people who were in Athens were not Metics, foreigners. Mathematic is basically an H1B. You can so. <laughs> so the, the the only one who were not metic was the was people from Cyber. And so there, there's some kind of uh, so that's why I, I like to call these people Greek or Phoenician, I mean, modern modern version of the Phoenician, Greek Phoenician. And of course now we know from DNA that the DNA of the past uh, 3,700 years hasn't changed much. Of the local population to the ancient one. I was talking with Eric Weinstein recently. And I suggested the following to him, that the way I read your work, on one hand, it was trying to explain what happened to Lebanon. So it's a you know, very regional concern, but you were also trying to put forward a vision of what an alternative Lebanese history would look like, a Phoenician one. And that positive program was the under-discussed part of understanding your work. And you're trying to lay out how Lebanon could be seen or could be Phoenician culture in the future. It is not, not, yeah, it is an Eastern Mediterranean culture, and I have uh, it's very easy to convince people it's an Eastern Mediterranean culture in Lebanon, despite the textbooks writing the opposite. Let me tell you what, really what happened. In 1860, the Christians in Lebanon did not write in Arabic. They wrote in Catholic uh, Gashuni. The American University in Beirut came in and tried to recruit Muslims that didn't work at the time of Syrian Protestant College, and they couldn't convert Muslims, they decided to convert Christians. And they translated the first translation of the New Testament, or actually the Bible, the whole thing, into Arabic. They thought was done by a surgeon, the Muslim surgeon called Van Dyke. In fact, something an attempt has been done 500 years earlier and failed. So this Arabization that started in the 1860s in Lebanon, when the Turks were around, is in fact what has that is a distortion of history of perception of what happens. He's trying to bring that part of the, the world away from the Ottoman Empire. Which was an Balkan Eastern Mediterranean world in which the place had been, you know, you know spent 500 years, and then before that, a thousand years on the Greek Romans. So, trying to move it closer to Arabia. And people bought the narrative because the Christians wanted to be non Muslim, yet have the same rights. So, they invented themselves a genetic story that they came from Yemen. They came from a tribe called the Benugasan. So, the Christians invented themselves some kind of uh, story. Yeah, the Phoenicians were here, but the Arabs kicked them out. And we, the Christians, come from a genetic focus that the population had not moved, and effectively it's the same people. And I see that you have Charles Korn, Charles Korn with the opposite narrative, the Western narrative that we are Greek or Roman. We had the school of Beirut, the school of Beirut, that for 500 years made or break laws. The only place where laws were made in the Roman Empire. We are Greek or Romans by culture. Let's go back to the Greek or Roman world, away from the 150 years of Arabization. And if you look at if you go to Lebanon, you realize that 150 years of Arabizing hasn't has, had no effect. So, you're Greek Orthodox by background, and if I were to ask, how do the Maronites fit into your schema? So there's a long-standing tension between these groups. It seems to me often that the Greek Orthodox would actually side with the Muslims, wanting a more stable Lebanon, okay. suspicious of the Crusades, suspicious of okay. the Maronites. Okay. So what's your take on this? I'm glad you asked me, because finally someone really understood the problem. They say I'd rather have the tiara 
of the, the say the, the the sultans, you know, when when a lot of people, a lot of factions in Constantinople in the 1400s, you know, the Turks were already in the area surrounding Constantinople for 250 years before it uh, fell, and it was just a book country. Before, I mean, it was a country. There was a battle, but it was not. So, and a lot of the initially the Turks came in as a Byzantine Empire, and they were very upset that the Russian would call themselves Caesars. What do you mean Caesar? We are, you know, the Sultan is the the continuation of. The, the Byzantine Empire, and there was that tension east-west, and this manifests itself through religion. And let me explain what I saw. The coastal Levant was monstrously Hellenized, except for Beirut, which was Latinized, because the language of Beirut, I mean, people were horrified to see that they used Latin, and because it was school of law, but the rest was Greek, and the countryside spoke Aramaic. So that, that's, that's the fact. And if you see the religion schisms, they map to Aramaic speakers versus Greek speakers. So, the Maronites, the Monothelites, as the first schism. But earlier, of course, you had the uh, you know the historians as a schism. And you look at the line of how people had the schism in Asia Minor, and you see that these schisms were entirely driven by by ethnicity, sort of like the English, uh, the Protestant versus Irish Catholic. So if, if, if the Irish, if the English were Catholic, I'd pay you the the, the, the Irish and Protestant. Right? I mean, so, <laughs> so, so that's sort of like what happened along these lines. And of course, the Byzantines were very suspicious of the West. I'm saying. And they saw Islam as a, and effectively, it was not really an unrealistic thought, because if you look what happened, there's 500 years under the, uh, the Ottomans, Serbia is Orthodox, Albania is Orthodox, Greece state Orthodox, Romania is Orthodox, these parts are Orthodox. So the idea, when you look at the world, the division East-West and Christianity and Christianity, they thought that at the time there were three blocks. There were the French, those Westerners, there were the East Meds, the room, it's called the room, and then there, there were the, the, the Easterners, Arabs, Persians, and that was, that was how it was seen. Okay? So, so this is, the, and then of course people identified along these lines, and then progressively when you had the heresy, people would go to Rome because the enemy by enemy. So the Maronites, and given tell the story beautifully how they came down to Tripoli to do a deal with the Franks, when, when, with, the, with the group of the Crusades to do a deal with Rome, because of, uh, you know, they wanted to move away from that. So the tension is not the tension that is modern, there is a tension, the one between the Maronites and the Greek Orthodox, is the tension that has been there forever. And let me give you a theory. And, and I want to comment, want to comment that this is something, since we're talking about it first time, I don't know you know this stuff. I'm honored that you're interested in the same thing. If you look at what happened also in the Levant, people fail to understand a few things that you have historians, basically the Syriacs, the Orthodox, they're not Casadonians. If you look at these people, the, 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 the Syriac speakers, who absolutely hated the Greeks. Just like the Copts hated the Byzantines. You forget, people forget that before the Arabs conquered the Levant, or actually they didn't really conquer the Levant, they just went through the Levant and it's not interesting, olive oils, nothing else. So when they came, before they came by, you had, a, you had a two generations of Persians in Lebanon. The Persians came and they brought them historians. Historians are similar to Maronite, different heresy, and they brought them with them to Zoroastrians. And then they left the Persians that were kicked out by the Byzantines. Those who stayed, were Zoroastrians and historians, right? By some mysterious things, you find Zoroastrianism as a Shiite Islam born in Lebanon and converting the Persians in the same place where these guys were brought in. And, and the, the Shiites were in Lebanon, so it seems to me that the population of Zoroastrians who came because the, the, the Byzantine hated Zoroastrians and, and non Casadonians, and they stayed, okay, or at least a religion came in, and, and there's a high, a big connection between Zoroastrianism and Shiite Shia Islam. Sure. So let me give you just a fairly subjective impression I have reading your latest book, Skin in the Game. 
So there's this long-standing tension with the Maronites. And you also have a very interesting discussion of why, in terms of Christology, Christ must in some way be at least part of man for God to have skin in the game. And I read that almost as your kind of intellectual reconciliation, that the new element for your big vision of what Lebanon sort of could have been and maybe will be, that you finally found a way of integrating the Maronites into your basic story that you yourself are willing to accept and indeed embrace. Okay, yeah, may I put one, all right? Two things about the Maronites. The first one is I was convinced until uh, about uh, seven years ago that the Maronites were migrants who came to Lebanon from, from the east. Because effectively their language, their liturgical language, is not Aramaic, but Syriac, which is Eastern Aramaic. And, and the brand that, of course, came. But it turned out, in fact, it's only the religion. The DNA is as local as it can be. Maronites are the, the descendants of the Phoenicians. So are the Shiites in Lebanon. We, Greek Orthodox and the Sunnis have a little more Greek or stuff like that. So that seemed to me, when I realized that, that I realized that there were opportunists. So that was already something. So second point, now let's talk about skin in the game. As I was watching, to connect to this, as I was watching Donald Trump debate the, uh, the other, uh, the guys who wear suits. <laughs> it was, I knew he was going to win. I was certain he was going to win. I couldn't figure out why. I was so convinced he was going to win at least that stage of the primary. And it turned out, Peter that said, yes, people love, and, and it turned out that I had heard the day before the news that were effectively not that correct, that he lost more than a billion dollars on money. So I thought about it. I said, okay, is there anything more human than showing a star? Say, you know, at least I'm real, and you guys are just uh, uh, like uh, pencil pushers or whatever. So I thought about it. I said that the skin of the game, you know, exhibiting risk-taking is effectively what makes you, uh, elevates you over the rest. Traditionally, you exhibit a scar or, uh, or like they have some kind of scar or some kind of sign of incapacitation coming from war. So effectively, it didn't hurt Armin. I was a practitioner coming from trading. The trader who lost a lot of money, at least is real. It's not like a bad thing. So I realized immediately that, and then I thought about it. I couldn't I had, I had trouble figuring out why is it that the Christian religion, we, we have that, that trinity, which makes absolutely no sense to Muslims and makes no sense to anybody who's not Christian, but it makes so much sense to you if you're Christian. Right? So why is it that it makes so much sense to have a trinity? And then, okay, then the Christ, is he God? Well, it's sort of like God, but he's not God, right? So you want to figure it out. Then you figure it out. If I go to the circus, and I have a fellow walking on a tight rope with a parachute. I've asked for my money back. <laughs> See, that's not how it works. Right? So the Christ was sufficiently meant to have skin in the game and sufficiently God to be God. So it worked. And for that, we had to concoct a story that appears to be absurd, but is necessary because it kept coming back to the Trinity, no matter what they tried. Let me try comparing you to another best selling Lebanese author. Are you the anti Khalil Gibran? <laughs> you both, both have books of sayings. You're both, in a sense, offering sermons from exile. Both moved to America, but he was Maronite. His influences are maybe Baha'i and the Sufis. Yeah. And you're, in a sense, doing everything in reverse and, and rebelling against him. Is that true? Well, not quite, because when you grow up uh, in Lebanon, you don't have a lot of... Uh, I mean, you think that Gibran is kind of novice stuff for the Maronites. <laughs> the idea of Gibran is not a... Uh, and plus, the other thing is, he comes from an area right above my village, like, like uh, 30 miles away, or 20, 30 kilometers away. But, and, and, and they invaded us uh, two times. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Charlie versus uh, Amir, which is Byzantine, lasted 
Byzantine outpost under Kamen and Vegas. So, so maybe you want to do some psychology on that. But Gibran <laughs> uh, has never been in high standing in my, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people are in high standing from the area, but not Gibran. Let me try a question a reader emailed to me, and I quote, what advice would you give to the timid and unconfident? Does one seeking conventional employability and respect and a lack of imagination or lack of confidence deserve only contempt? How does one be in the world meaningfully if you're not awesome? The point is that we are imperfect, and the way we function best is accepting we're imperfect. This is why we have theology. You want perfection, you can find it in theosis and find a lot of things. Incidentally, to go back to the idea of being orthodox, theosis is a way for us humans to, to rise above our condition of human. Right? And it's given to its openness, it's equal opportunity for everyone. So, if you consider that we are imperfect, and the way really you can rise is through honor, sense of honor, by doing your reason for self-sacrifice. Then you rely this kind of game is having taking risks as a for the sake of becoming more human. Okay. Just like the price, he took risk and he suffered. Of course, it was a bad outcome, but uh, you don't have to go that far. But, so that, that was the idea. And it's sort of, I didn't talk about theosis, but I just mentioned one footnote, but it's sort of like you understand that, that the way that we're not in here to, to eat mozzarella and go to Tuscany, right? And we're not in here to accumulate money. We're in here to mostly to sacrifice, to, to, to do something, right? That's, and, and, and the way you do it, by taking risks. Some people take risks, and some people uh, labor in the fields. But you have the option of doing either either one or the other. But my point is, you should never have someone rise in society if he or she is not taking risks for the sake of others. That's one rule. And the second one, you should never be public intellectual if any statement you make doesn't entail risk-taking, which is, which is a fact that comes with, in other words, you never should never have rewards without any risk. So that, that's uh, the, the thing. And then you can accept inequality if the person who's unequal is taking risks, because that would make things rotate. For example, if someone becomes a billionaire, okay, it's fine, he's unequal, but you got to keep taking risks. Can't be, you cannot be locked into a frozen upper class condition and then, you know, then use your situation to use the government you know, to prop you up there. And that's a good thing about America, it's a rotation that you have. When it comes to childbearing decisions, do men have enough skin in the game? Well, I mean, uh, the, 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 I don't know if we can divide things so narrowly because men have lower life expectancy, so visibly, and have had in history lower life expectancy. I don't know, but today in Washington DC it's not reversed, but they have, and um, and of course you have more criminals among men. What ratio ten to one? In terms of incarceration, so you have a high rate. So maybe not in the bearing of the child, but in doing something else that's dangerous. Let me ask you another question about religion: Is volatility in fluid exchange rates a big problem? <laughs> so, so when it comes to religion, again, I, mean, I wrote this in, in here, we don't know what the F star star we're talking about when we talk about religion, because people start comparing religion, the, the, the thing is ill-defined. There's some religions that are religions, some religions are just plays of laws, like Judaism and Islam are not religions like Christianity is a religion, the exact opposite, and let me define, uh, explain, the, the foundation of, 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 of Judaism was law, right, but it was municipal, I mean, it was for uh, the tribe. It was law, you shall not, so what is this? Okay. And then and Islam, the same word deen in Arabic means law in, in Hebrew. Okay. But not in Syria, which is a Semitic language used by Christian, which, okay, when they use two different words, one nomos, law, and one deen for religion. So why is it so? Because the, the Islam and Judaism are laws. It's law. There's no, no distinction between holy and profane. Whereas Christianity is not law. Why is it law? Simple reason. You remember the Christ? said, well, this is Caesar, this is not Caesar, because the Romans had the law. 
So you're not going to bring the law because they already have the law and very sophisticated law in that. The Romans. So Christianity was, with Christianity was born the separation of church and state. See, it's a secular, so it's effectively a secular religion in the sense that when you go home, you do whatever you want. So of course, Christianity had hiccups, we had theocracies, a few, but it was all cosmetic. Like, for example, when you have the codes, whether Theodosius Justinian, or the big Justinian's code, you look at it, you see, just cosmetically, you say, we bless it by the grace of God, two pages, and the rest, sorry, the rest is intact, the Roman law. So, so when we talk about religion, so when people are talking about Salafi Islam, it's not a religion in the sense that Mormon Christianity is a religion. It is a body law. It's a legal system. It's a political system. It's a legal system. So when people, so, so people are very confused when they talk about religion. They're, they're comparing things, they're not the same. And, and effectively, when, when I say that I'm Christian, it's very different from saying I am whatever, something else. And the same mutates, and I say sometimes it describes ethnicity, Greek Orthodox, is more ethnicity than something else. Uh, and you know, the, 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 or saying, or being uh, Serbian versus Croatian. So sometimes religion becomes an identity, sometimes law, sometimes very universal. And so, and sometimes the, the hidden thing, you have pagan tendencies hidden under some kind of takia that you see in minorities, agnostic religions, like uh, otherwise uh, rules, uh, other, uh, so, so, you, so comparing religions naively, silly, is formalistic, and leads to things like saying, well, he has a right to exercise his faith. Some faiths should not have the right to be exercised, like Salafis or extreme uh, jihadis, because, because they're not religions, they're a legal system. They're like political party that wants to ban all other political parties. And if you go with that, you know, uh, you're repeating the uh, mistakes. How has the Aramaic language influenced or helped structure your thought? Zero, close to, I mean, zero. I mean, all right, I, learned, I picked it up later, but I think, but it's, it's always interesting to discover, I'm doing some philology, and I discovered two or three things uh, when we're that not skin the game. I discovered that there's two kinds of people, and hopefully we'll talk about it again with Brian. People who come from practice and people who come from theory. And we have, uh, this planet doesn't have a third category of people who have both. So you have linguists who absolutely don't know what the fuck, sorry, what the hell they talk about. And so I noticed that in, in, in the description of categorization of languages, linguists are not fluent in the languages they're categorizing. And it makes a huge difference. So uh, I think the Levantine is close to Aramaic, but linguists don't accept it because of the, they have their metrics that, that don't work. But if, but if you use a statistical method, then you realize that it's Aramaic. Or if you use practice, you realize that. I'd like to toss out the names of just a few countries or regions, and you tell me whether or not you think they're anti-fragile. Singapore. Singapore has size going for it. So you're, uh, so you're defining, it's like, uh, you see we're talking about a city. A city-state. Isn't it a vulnerable city-state that relies on our protection? We don't always care. Who's going to be the one thing I learned from uh, history, if you want to take the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, they really have an army. Or they have an army. Well, someone had some army that you might say it's not economically viable. Why? When you come to invade them, Unless we never could know, or supposedly in history books say that it was very nasty, but then uh, you know, fact checking that didn't take place, and the genetics actually don't show, but really, it may have happened. And a guy comes in, comes in very bloodthirsty, comes to you, and you tell him, listen, what do you want? You kill us all? You get nothing, right? We, land is not interesting. What are you going to get? Uh, just, we'll give you 5%, right? So what do you want? 5% of something or 100% of nothing? So that's what the, how the Phoenicians operated. So someone would come in, well, I mean, they had a hiccup with Alexander. One pound higher yeah. had a hiccup with Alexander. <laughs> but uh, they, uh, they had an anger problem with both, on both sides. But, but other than that, we haven't had... So it worked very well as a, as a system. But the Seleucids did conquer the Phoenicians, right? The Phoenicians, the Phoenicians, no, the Seleucids came in, they say, okay, the system at the time was patronage. 
you come in, you're a vessel state, and then you say, what, what is it? So, and then you guys are libertarian, and you don't understand. I live in New York City, so I have two options. One, pay the state with all of this, that's going to go 50 some percent of taxes, and you almost get nothing. Or you go to the mafia now and you give them 2%. And you get protection, and you get all the things that you want done. 2%. Right? So, so that's exactly what happens. So think about the defense function if it were run by the mafia. Right? So the guy who come in, so the, and the system at the time was the system, when you say conquer, the imperial methods everywhere, including the Ottomans, before them the Romans, before them the Seleucides and the, uh, the Ptolemy, the, the Ptolemies who had more integration. But the whole technique was, it's very common, you come in. Oh, and remember that government role in GDP was at the turn of the century in France 5%. Okay, less century. So having been, you're not part of anything, you're just paying taxes to someone you never see. So that was the, 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 the thing. The integration usually was through commerce, not through military commerce. And, and so the idea of Singapore, someone available, let's say Malaysia decides to take over Singapore, he's got to do that. They've got nothing. Right? So it's much better to go to Singapore, tell them we want 2%. Right? Or we want 10%, and then they break it down to 3%. Who is Russia? Fragile or anti fragile? I, I did something, I did a study on, uh, on countries. Uh, when we wanted uh, to look at, they the use metrics in this town of predicting stability of countries based on past stability, right? Which to me is just absurd. For example, if you think, uh, because the, the metric would tell you that Saudi Arabia, uh, when, when we were writing the one actually, I came here and I told them that two set of countries, same government for 40 years, 40 government in 40 years, which country is more stable? Two sets of countries on the, on the right, one on the left. They said the one that had the same government, same families, actually. People here in this town at the Wilson Center. So uh, I said that these guys got things backwards. The countries on the right were Syria and uh, Saudi Arabia. Now it was so far away for a second shoot drop. And on the other one was Italy. And last time I checked, Italy was still standing. And uh, mozzarella was excellent. <laughs> so, 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 so the idea of countries that are have a very uh, uh, too much stability become weaker. Particularly if it's propped up, sort of like companies. If you take companies, you want to see companies that are robust. Look at companies that have zero volatility, compressed volatility. Many of them really should have zero volatility, but some of them would have a uh, would be sitting on, on dynamite. You're smoothing to cover things up, right? Or, 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 or if you have, or if you, for example, someone has employed who has a very stable salary because he or she is employed as an anti-fragile by a, but then you laid off at age 65 after three years of employment, and basically you can't do anything. Whereas someone that has a little volatile income is more adaptive. So when I looked at countries, we looked at countries uh, in the Eastern uh, Eastern Bloc, and these countries had effectively the two properties. One, they took a lot of heat during that that, that period. You know, the post-Soviet uh, phase was very, 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 very rough. And all of them, Armenia, Georgia, um, Russia, uh, Romania, all of them, in fact, improved through that phase. So country that I mean, so so this is makes me believe that they can take another economic crisis, any crisis, and survive. They, they, they have proved the ability to survive. I'm not sure France can manage tomorrow. They have the same disruption. You're going on Turkey, fragile or anti-fragile? I'm going to Turkey in two weeks, so I'd rather answer when I come back. But, but, uh, okay. but, but, something, but from my uh, feeling that what you see on a, the, the Turks are very happy because they got washing machines, they got stuff, and they attributed to Erdogan. Uh, so, uh, so the Erdogan is associated with growth, not so much with religion. ELO, fragile or anti-fragile? ELO, Palestine Liberation Organ. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they, were, they were anti-fragile, they had nothing to lose. When they were in Lebanon, they had nothing to lose. So this is why they had no skin in the game. That's sort of like, with the idea of a group that had nothing to lose, always 
I mean, I'm not sure there's something in the civil war in Lebanon today. Uh, every time someone sneezes in downtown Beirut, people are afraid of the civil war, okay? And they don't realize that everyone is down to here in the real estate. So no, nobody has any interest in the waging war. It's not like 1975 or 1973. What they like as a six Syrian refugees. They're, they're very nice. Uh, they're Sunnis, and they, my mother hates Assad. And they love us, so there's fights between my mother and, and, <laughs> Assad. and one of them went to Syria the, 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 and, and, and to vote for Assad and could come back just to tell you how devoted he is. So I, I think so. I, what I do is I talk to him to know what's going on. He calls his brothers, siblings, and the, the, he's violently, uh, his Sunni violently accepts them. Why? He said that he's religious Sunni. He said because at least we get it. So for him, Assad represents stability. And, and effectively for a lot of Syria. So if you, you got to look at Syria from Syria, not Syria from. Uh, uh, Saudi Barbaria finance lobbies here. Okay, you get a different story. People want stability. But the one thing, one lesson I learned from Syria is that he's complaining. He said, you know, these cell phones. I go here in Lebanon. This guy sells it for two hundred dollars. This guy two hundred twenty, two hundred forty. He said, Syria is perfect. Same price everywhere. <laughs> so it's a little bit So he's, you know, the boss has indoctrinated people to the point of maybe no return. But uh, I mean, the the they, people understand that. Assad is not a uh, god, but I bet you a lot of Iraqis would like Saddam to come back after what they saw, what they saw. So the idea that they all have regarded the same, now if you're on the grounds, you don't have this theoretical thing, this guy's an asshole, okay, fine. You've got to realize it's like citizens, right? You look at both sides of citizens. That when you have civil war, you have two people fighting, so you have, so you take the least asshole becomes somewhat good in your eyes. But when you analyze only one portion, so the the, the, the idea, I mean, Assad blew up, his father blew up, my mind. My, my, my house. My grandfather was a member of parliament in 1982, voted for, for the pro-Israeli Jemayel, uh, and they came in and blew up our house. So I have a hatred for the Assad family. But at the same time, I just realized I have a bigger hatred for the jihadis and for uh, the clients of Obama. So uh, so this is how we got to analyze it, comparatively, not naively, like what I have a series of quick questions to ask you about the topic of wisdom. And I'll just shoot these out. Feel free to ask if you don't want to address them. First, what is the biggest mistake people make when they go to the gym? Is they exercise, they exercise too much. What's the best way to find and consume dark chocolate? Uh, I think I, 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 that's one thing that this is, uh, you're 10 years behind on that. <laughs> Somehow I lost the taste for chocolate, but the, the best way to find and consume is not those labels, you know, the fancy thing made by Rufar, it's probably made in Brooklyn. But, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the, but I'm, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> if you were here today, what would you ask of Eriko? Well, you would think of Trump. What can we learn from Sufism? How uh, to have a uh, branch of Islam that effectively peaceful, uh, allows drinking. I don't know if you know that. And, uh, so that's very convenient. <laughs> but the, the problem and how and the problem that it was destroyed by uh, Saudi Arabian uh, funding. That's how to revive. We should revive Sufism. Now, what can we learn from them is how any religion can be destroyed without anybody noticing. The number, the number of Sufis, Ottoman Sufis, particularly Lebanon. It was Sufi. Okay, why did it become uh, not Sufi? Because of funding from Saudi Arabia, you indoctrinate the two generations, and that's it. How do you find the right mentors in life? I don't know, but I know how to find inverse mentors. <laughs> how do you do that? Uh, people, uh, you know that do something wrong, and you'll figure out what made them do something wrong. Like, uh, there's a fellow I worked with, and I knew that he was a complete failure, but a last person. So, what would do something wrong? He was always got into details. So I realized that details, we've got, got only one set of details. You cannot get into more than one set of details. So that's one thing I learned. Right? So, and then also that by inverse role models, people don't want to be like, <laughs> <laughs> so you pick someone, 
idea. I think it's a great idea to have self-driving cars. Um, if someone in a car is responsible, there's an accident. So in other words, you're someone is some, either someone I can sue or someone I can you know blame uh, as something great who is in a vehicle, not saying it's a computer, not some anonymous person. And should we someday just all collectively turn our back on social media? No, because social media is Lindy, and I mean Lindy means that there's things that are robust to time, like some basins that are robust to time, and you realize that, for example, uh, this cup of coffee, you know, the okay, I'm not going to go back to Tunisia, so maybe five hundred years old. Okay, the book is five hundred years old under this form, and maybe several thousand years old under different form. And so the the, the Lindy means that, that they're robust to time, and they come back after they disappear. They tend to come back. Now it so happened that. The, at no point in history, except during the post-war you know, war period, did people receive news without being conveyors of news. Without, you know, that, that nuclear family of people, pop, mom, 2.2 kids, one dog, and watching TV, all right? Receiving information and not transmitting, all right? The solitude of big city blocks. So that was the idea. Well, that's gone because traditionally, you get the news and you convey the news. So you're a recipient and a conveyor with a little bit of alteration in the process. So, and then we got back to the social media. So I, and, and you very quickly learned to identify, like there was a false alert yesterday in Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, there was a coup or something, but you can figure out that there are some people you can trust, others you can't trust. And those you can't trust, you quickly identify them, so like those who cry wolf all the time. And uh, so social media is bringing us back to a naturalistic environment, because say in, in Athens, where was the news? What was the, the, the newsroom? The newsroom was a barbershop. You go in, you give information, and you take information. Or the fish market. You go in, you get fish, you get information, you get information. And funerals, where you go in, you chat, you know, think like you cry, and then you get you pull the gossip. So that is with gossip machines. So, is, uh, so social media is great in that respect. And I, I love it because I didn't, I don't know if you, I told, I did I refuse to have a book tour. I refused to give media interviews in the US at least. I did one in London by accident. <laughs> I sent my book to newspapers. So Brandon House said, What? I said, Okay, find other authors. So, okay, they, 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 they agreed, although they cheated, I think, by sending some people. So there was no book review in the US, my book, all social media. And it opened number 12 on a list. It tells you that you don't need the New York Times to exist as an author, that Twitter is sufficient. Twitter and some uh, Facebook, that's it. For our final segment, I have a few questions on what I call the Nassim Nicholas Talib production function. So you've written a few times that you've described yourself as an ascetic in some ways. How did you become an ascetic early in your life? Ascetic? A-S-C-E-T-I-C. Yeah, you mean uh, like uh, up the mountain? You mean? Yes. So I'm not that ascetic. I'm, uh, it depends on what you're ascetic about. But I discovered, okay, so let me give you an anecdote that's in the book. One day I went with uh, uh, someone to dinner and, and uh, Okay, I wanted to go to a tavern now, and we can go to a, a better restaurant. So I ended up having a meal, which, like, you had to realize that you had a meal at the, with, with the, 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 the three star Michelin restaurant. We sit down, you have funny people, this is microscopic work, it's work, it was like going to work, right? You concentrate, you're free, you bite it too much, and, and you get all these sophistication pronouncements. And then I realized that as people get rich, they get controlled by the preferences, they get controlled by the outside. And I would, and it was like, I don't know, $200 a person. And I said, okay, I'd rather pay $200 for a pizza, okay, and would pay $6.95 for the same meal, right? Except that by social pressure, this is how we lose the following preferences. It's a skin the game. But, uh, you know, you discover that your preferences are people are happier in small quarters. You have neighbors around you in the narrow streets, 
uh, people are happier uh, having uh, uh, meals and uh, I'd rather eat with someone else a sandwich provided it's good bread, all right, it's <laughs> bread, than, than eat at a you know, fancy restaurant. So it's the same uh, the thing. Then we discovered little by little that even from a hedonic standpoint, okay, this uh, uh, sophistication is fact of birth. But aside from that, there is something also that from the beginning we realized that, that hedonism, like pursuit of pleasure for pleasure's sake, there's something about it that uh, gives me anxiety. Right. So, whereas on the other hand, uh, doing something productive, uh, productive in the sense uh, of uh, uh, virtue signaling, but something that I think uh, like that fits a sense of honor, uh, feel good. So, what, so yeah. what books influenced you early in life? Say before you were fifteen years old. The the, the book I kept reading is uh, the, the, the desert of the, the desert of the Italia. So even was, before you were fifteen, that was before fifteen, and and I read it many times. I'd say, I'd say when 4.15 I read the Dostoevsky, and again, I mean, uh, and I, read, I read The Idiot, and there's a scene that maybe at 14 when I read it, is the Prince uh, Mishkin was, was given the story, it's actually it was autobiographical for Dostoevsky, he said he was going to be put to death, and as they woke him up and were taking him to the execution place, he decided to live the last few minutes of his life with intensity, and he devoured life with so pleasurable, and promised himself, if he survives, to enjoy every minute of life the same way, okay? And he survived. In fact, it was a simulacrum of an execution and Dostoevsky, and effectively that says the guy survived. And the lesson was he no longer did that. It was like preferences of most could carry on later. He forgot about the episode. And, and that marked me from Dostoevsky when I was a kid, and then become obsessed with Dostoevsky. And what was your favorite part of the Bible as a boy? Uh, I'm going to be honest. The Bible can play a lot of, a lot of it's too complex, too many names in the Bible, so yeah. to the final question. Yes. What is it that you do in your moments of solitude? Uh, math. Math. And that, that pleases you, or that's a form of work that uh, does anxiety. No, no, I, I, I only develop anxiety when I go to fancy restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> with, with, uh, with, when I've done something right, but I don't have a. But math is. Uh, I, I, do, I, I like it. People tell me that the people age today like math less and math is the game. Yes, uh, it's more and more enjoyable. So I, 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 I do math, uh, math, math, mostly I, I, there's a Twitter math that I'm part of, so there's always something to solve. And usually the beauty of it is that it's totally unpredictable. It takes between one minute and one day to solve one problem. And, and you don't know, and this, and then this thing comes in and, and then I stop. So and based on you know your own upbringing as a boy, if you were giving advice to someone raising a child up through the age of 18, yeah. what would be the takeaway you would offer from your own life experience up to that age? Become an get a degree from school, but become an autodidact. Don't waste time trying to get an A, because you're not going to talk about it with Brian. You're not going to remember all that shit, right? But you always remember what you tried to read by yourself. I remember the, 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 the stuff I read by myself, okay, that I was driven. I don't remember stuff I was going to be at school. So it's an allocation of time that's. But I discovered that as a, I wanted to be a writer as a kid. So I realized that to have an edge as a writer, you can't really know what people know, all right? You've got to know a lot of stuff that they don't know. So I started reading books like uh, voraciously, and, and effectively, wrote, you know, and, and also read books that, uh, with some instinct, that would be helpful 20 years from now. So therefore, it's not the latest uh, nonfiction bestseller. So I read a lot of stuff, and, and I think that I would recommend the same: read as much as you can, and focus, try to get the lowest possible passing grade you can in school. <laughs> and don't study uh, stuff like history because it's going to be revised. Geography, history, all these boring things like chemistry or stuff like that. Math is, I think, probably the only thing you can pick up at school that's useful. 
right, so I feel pretty good because that's close to my first guess about what you had in mind. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so anyway, so my first guess was actually you agree the original academic, uh, academic curriculum isn't very useful, and learning by doing is, were two things I said. And then I missed the chance to explain why learning by doing works so well. That sounds. I'm not blaming you, but use your argument for society to improve by maybe changing the way we teach people. Okay, and and, and also put some historical background since we have Tyler here for uh, you know to put some Greco-Roman uh, stuff around. It, okay, because the, uh, the the you know the Romans despised uh, theory and the Greek despised practice, which is that why the, the first uh, the black swan is Mandelbrot, the Greek among Romans, and. Uh, the, the, the next one is uh, dedicated to Ron Paul, a Roman among Greeks. <laughs> so, so, so the, 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 the Roman, so, so, so I understand that the, the engine behind everything is convexity. The chapter, I think, or the comment I made was I'd rather be anti fragile than smart. I said I'd rather, because if you're, and, and, and you can model it, and I did a Monte Carlo by showing the population of people who actually are stupid, but not very stupid. Okay, but they do a lot of trial and error. And people are very smart, like the chemists, but they don't come, they can't do a lot of trial and error. And they realize that those who try and error, if they have the intelligence to realize it, then what they got slightly better than the previous thing. We get far ahead, you need a thousand IQ points to match someone who's aggressively doing trial and error. That was that was the idea. And then teaching people that, okay, is impossible unless you have practice. And so 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 the root of suggesting education is you send people, you make people work as nurses, and then they go to medical school. And effectively, uh, I spoke to a lot of doctors, and they think it's a good idea because they're afraid of medicine being now too theorized, becoming too theorized. You make people run a uh, mafia, small mafia local, uh, or or whatever you want, a racketing, racketeering shop, or a <laughs> casino, or something like that, for seven, eight years, and then you go study economics. So, so the, 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 we're living longer. So, this idea of front-loading education makes no sense. So you know, just reminds you. So there are plenty of countries where you don't have to get an undergraduate degree to go to medical school, right? In the U.S., first you do an undergraduate degree, then you go to medical school. Sounds like you're saying better to be a practitioner for four years and then maybe go to medical school and just get being an undergraduate. Uh, no, not skipping undergraduate. No, start undergraduate later in life. The age thirty. You know, think about that model. I know because I, well, I started training, right? I had no idea. First of all, I didn't like school. I like to read books, and uh, my mind I had ADD, so it was boring for me. So I started training, and then I discovered math. I said, oh, this is interesting, right? So I started discovering math, so I got immersed into math. And 15 years later, I went back to school, right? So the, 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 so I went back to try to do math, and thankfully, you know, for classes, uh, and I did my thesis, and that was it. But the, the, the idea, um, and I started writing papers. So the, the idea of having to start by theory and ending up with practice doesn't work. You should try practice than theory. That's the wrong way. So now, what do you think about people who make the following argument, which you, only you can decide whether it's a true black swan argument, but people might put it forward as their their version of black swan argument. So for a lot of people say, well, sure, virtually all of these subjects that you're learning in school are useless, but there are positive black swans. Once in your life, an academic subject you study is going to turn out to be absolutely crucial. I mean, like, like, you know, like one example of this, there was a guy who said, well, look, actually French was really important. It was totally worth the time because one time I was at Charles de Gaulle Airport, and if I hadn't spoken French, I would have missed my flight. And like, well, so you spent three years studying French to avoid one missed flight. That seems like pretty free. Uh, but anyway, but you can imagine someone giving something like that, saying, "Sure, almost all the subjects are no good, 
but there's one, you're going to get one positive black swan out of your whole education. Yeah. That alone makes it all, all, all that ever. You know, the counter argument is actually more potent. You're spending how many hundreds of hours studying something you're not going to remember later, but you can spend that time uh, learning a craft like how to uh, break or to uh, safe. All right. So from the payoff, plus, you know, it doesn't mean that the other one won't have an equivalent amount of tail events that are positive. So you're ruling out that the other activities would have a tail event. There's something, the problem uh, with, with education now is that it's a business. So like any business, it's a futurized business. It, it's become a racket. So so it's very hard now to, to talk, to, to, to argue against education when we know all the empirical data. I mean, if you, you want to have a few minutes to explain it, uh, or you say to convince or we have all the empirical data that at the individual level, education, uh, and that's how I put it in anti-fragile education, it appears that it's good for you because it's gonna, it's a great way to transmit wealth for generation because your children will are certain to stay in middle class if you uh, if you educate them. It's a great way. But uh, but at the level of the country, it doesn't seem to work. And in fact, it's, it's the reverse of anything. Uh, the the, the Alison Wolves of those data. And even more interesting is that people think that by educating uh, people, you're actually uh, transmitting knowledge instead of technique, because places like Germany and Switzerland, uh, these places had very low level of education, formal education had a huge amount of apprenticeship and a huge amount of built-in. So I was with Alison Wolf at a party and we we're saying that education didn't work. And I was talking to her and I said, what are you guys talking about? How education doesn't work? What education doesn't work? You mean knowledge doesn't work? No, this is knowledge. This works. I and mean, knowledge what we have in the party. But education in terms of something formatted to be taught in school doesn't seem to work. So that's his argument. And the, the, the one he's presenting, now we're looking at either to go deeper into what's the reason, or the other one is, what is the alternative? The alternative more apprenticeship, visibly. How are we going to destroy that uh, deep state of education, sort of like that, that tries to sell you something for a quarter million dollars that's worth nothing, right? Effectively, it's negative because of the time you spend there. And why we should have effectively knowledge or education or the academy that's formatted for something more optional and later later life. What you learn in grad school is definitely something useful for you, no? Yeah, so I mean, what I usually tell people is say, look, the you know, reason why school is great is that there's going to be something to learn there that's going to be invaluable. Say, look, I agree that it makes sense to expose people to a variety of subjects, but it seems like it makes a lot more sense to expose them to 10 or 20 subjects they're actually likely to use than 10 subjects that virtually no one on earth uses. So you know, rather than saying, let's, have, let's make sure everyone studies poetry and art history and a foreign language in America, and everybody, everyone learns a bunch of sports. Instead, like, why not make sure everyone spends a few weeks learning some plumbing, a few weeks learning some electricity, a few, you know, a few weeks going and just learning some customer service. So I say, yeah, I mean, like, like, you, know, you do want to have a diverse menu, and you don't want to lock a 12-year-old into a career when he's 12, but still far better to go expose him to a tasting menu of realistic options rather than the tasting menu of pipe dreams, which is what it seems to be yeah, but, mostly about. Yeah, but the, 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 the root of that, in my feeling, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world, is uh, the desire, is what they call the liberal arts education, to aristocrat, aristocratize uh, themselves. Because, in, 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 again, let's talk the, about the Greco Roman world. You had the trivium quadrivium, there was absolutely nothing practical about it. Rhetoric, uh, grammar, uh, so, so things that the liberal education was, was what people learned to be uh, in order to become aristocrat and idle upper class. Right? And then you had the real profession, how to become a baker, how to become something that was looked down 
And the English, when the upper class, of course, they didn't want to be working class, so they send their kids to learn that stuff. And this is what came to America. So, so education is split in two. You have technical education, like uh, law, a technical and professional education, law, medicine, what else? Engineering, engineering, engineering right? Like all these things. And then you have mathematics. And if you look at historically, the engineers didn't really connect to the other one because the Roman engineers did not use Euclidean geometry. And then we only started using Euclidean geometry late in life after the educational system started including mathematics for, for, for these people. The engineers would build cathedrals like Euclidean geometry. And it was actually more robust. Euclidean uh, geometry gives you these ugly corners. Yeah. Before, because they don't know what the right angle is, whereas before, it was, it was more involved with rule of thumb, and it was so it's different. So they had a separate segregation. So what you want to do is, if it's liberal education that's contaminating the rest, or is it the technical that's contaminating the education, we have expectation from education we should be having. So you say, okay, this is the kind of thing you do, like piano lessons, right? You know, on weekends, right? You read the Homer and stuff like that. It's important to become civilized. Stuff you do to be civilized, feel civilized, and be able to have dinner with the, the vice president of the World Bank. Right? These are the things you do. And these are the things you do to get your head in life. So your problem has been no problem ever since, you know, we've had the, 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 the Roman Greece uh, you know, competing. So, uh, what do you, so my most controversial policy proposal is just less. So I, educational austerity, spending less on education. I've noted that when, I, when, when, when someone says we need more money for education, the reaction is normally, yay, not what specifically you plan to spend the money on. On the other hand, when I say let's spend less on education, the only reaction is precisely, what exactly do you propose to cut? Right. Anyway, so not something that a lot of people are interested in, but reading it through, I get the feeling that you might actually be willing to countenance a draining of the educational swamp through cutting off some of their money. Uh, you bet. Uh, and, and, right. and I went to India once, and I, uh, you know, before that, I have no advice to give anyone. I don't understand, so I probably have to burn out something. So I said, let have open a thousand schools at one university. I opened it. I said that. Okay. And then, sure enough, a year later, I see a headline, Modi, a speech saying, and actually, I said that to Modi, right, to the, the, the president. So I had Modi saying, we'd rather open a thousand schools than a single university. Right? And then the focus on that, what's the problem with India? India, that they have a lot of educated people who know sociology. Okay, it's nice, but it's the kind of thing for dinner with the VP at the World Bank. It's not something, right? But the uh, whereas if you want to know how to do electricity, how, how to, 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 to make batteries or something like that, that's more useful. So and now the trend is effectively to cure that problem of having theoretical education coupled with, with complete misery with something in the middle, which is uh, the technical schools. So, I mean, like a standard critique of Indian elementary education is that, it's, that is also terrible. Teachers don't even bother showing up. Very little learning going on there. But again, like, you know, like a normal American reaction to say we need to go and get the Indian schools in order so that teachers show up and do their job. And my reaction is more of, given this has gone on for these decades, why don't we cut them spending first and then say maybe you can have some of the money back if you actually start doing your jobs. Skinny the game. So, kind of better teach people uh, uh, young, very young, to spend three or four hours or something. I mean, just like, uh, you know, if you're, how did people learn medicine in the old days? It was a generational thing. And your father is a doctor, and you walk around with your father, or uh, maybe mother. You have a lot of, uh, actually, there were a lot of women in the Levant, in the health sector. And then you learn, the, and, and this, you know, that's a professional state within, within uh, uh, families. And our secrets that were transmitted, they don't give the outside, which unfortunately we don't have because at the end of the problem is knowledge and education that it's always broad and open, whereas transmission of technical skills are 
brought by guilds and secrecy, like the Freemasonry, to the point that today the, the Romans had phenomenal concrete that we don't have the recipe. So, I mean, I think, you know, I feel like reading your book, I feel like one thing we had in common is things that we've seen with our own eyes weigh heavily upon, upon both of us. So, I mean, to me, like a, a lot of my extreme negativity about education actually comes not only from remembering my own education, when I go to back to school night, when I go to parent teacher night, and I just think, well, if you were to go and tell these people, say, you know, teach your kids to go and learn how to do something, would I trust these people to carry out that order? And my reaction is, no way. These are touchy-feely people who do not want to think about anything in terms of practical results. They don't like the idea of there being oh, like a test, like did he learn it or not. Instead, like, for so many of the teachers that I saw, it really is all about the experience and you enjoy the experience. And I'm there saying, no, it's not about just about the experience. It's about do you know something at the end? Can you do something? Can you show me? And don't say that it can't be measured. Like if you really knew something, you could come up with a test to measure it. I think that the idea, the, 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 again, that if we go back to the Haitians, um, when you were learning a profession, you learned a profession from a professional. You don't learn a skill in the game. And uh, I put the skill in the game, what happens to fields where the feedback is peer reviewed, not feedback from reality. So in other words, a carpenter has feedback from his clients or her clients. Whereas a uh, macroeconomist has only feedback from Paul Krugman, so it's basically closed. <laughs> so, so it's a closed system, and, and they can give themselves novels. So, so, so there's a. Uh, and, and when you want to learn something, you want to learn. And this is why I mean, uh, I have a, a section where for 280 years, uh, there's a fundamental problem with probability that's so obvious and very galvanic. Every trader knows, but no, nobody in. Decision science, I would no psychologists know because they're not risk takers, so not connected to reality. So let's split into these two two things. Learn from a professional who has done the stuff. If you want to learn how to become a mafia lord, you learn from mafia lord. You don't go learn from uh, Francis Ford Coppola, right? You learn from, so you, you learn from the people who do it, okay? And if you want uh, to, so in the old days, the other stuff, you're supposed to be an autodidact. Under a tutor who supervises what books you're going to read, but there's no none of this classroom high security prison environment that we have today. See, so and 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 that's a liberal education where you have a mentors and you find mentors. It's still, I mean, the, the English and also camera system still has these where you're self directing, you're all learning. So, but if you apply to high school, I think what I learned the most was from my years in high school, but not from high school. And at some point, this great idea to be a Marxist for a few hours, or a Trotskyist, because it makes you read a lot of interesting books. And then you go through these phases. So the the let's see the the so we have to reform education to turn people into autodidact. Plus, there's another thing: you cannot possibly trust two classes of people. Let's get a game on my, my educators who are better at explaining than understanding, because they're selectively better, and science journalists who are better at communicating than understanding, because then you end up with things like scientism. No practicing scientist, okay, would, would, would rule out skepticism and tell you the science is settled and stuff like that. But these people have a mindset that science is scientific because they don't know enough science. All they know is how to communicate. And that is the problem. So you're learning, you're going to realize that you're not learning from someone who does science, you're learning from someone who transmits science. And, and, I, and, and I tell you now, I was lucky that I didn't have a good math teacher when I was a kid. I started zooming out because then I would become a mathematician, I'm sure. But, but the self-taught and almost everything that I really like, but teaching, the way they teach you mathematics, is really to deter you from liking mathematics. <laughs> <laughs>
So, so you probably don't get this a lot, but when I was reading Anti-Fragile, I often kept thinking, my God, he's such an optimist. I can't believe that he thinks the world works this well. Yeah, no, I, I'm an optimist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, like, this is a great system. But, <laughs> so, like, when you said, look, you can either learn from peers or reality, I mean, how about the thing that usually happens, which is that you are learning from a person who doesn't even know the subject they are teaching, which is what I see happening in so many classrooms. You know, like, when I see history teachers who know less history than the better students in the class, and these are the <laughs> teachers, and when I say, look, I mean, again, like, I'd rather that they have someone that, you know, there's someone you're talking about, someone who only knows what they know in books, but at least they know that. So I'd rather have that person teaching the class. You know, what ha what's happening now more and more in, in education, but how do you become a professor and get tenure? Is by writing some kind of garbage about something. <laughs> so, so, so you think, and so, for example, I was trying to read something about the Republic of Letters. And it was all on Wikipedia, and all the commentaries was about gender study approach. I don't want the theory, but I wanted the facts, and you can't get the facts. So we end up with a lot of people, in fact, today, this generation, because of the competitive environment and the closed circuit in the humanities, that basically don't know anything about humanities. All they know are the theories du jour about this and this, and the post-colonial approach to this and that. And they, for example, when you start arguing with people who studied about something called Middle Eastern study, which shouldn't exist as a discipline, but let's assume they, they start talking about colonialism. The French, the French spent 21 and a half years in the Levant, right? And, and as, as a United Nations mandate, explain to me the colonialism. They say, well, they don't even know the basic facts. Because the more you, you have a ratio of theories and white words, isms, you know, and stuff like that, and the Marxist, and so someone that's good at Marxist interpretation of this and this and the post gender world, right? But, and they don't know the facts. So this is why you can't rely on these instructors teacher of the humanities because you don't get tenure from knowing the facts, you get tenure from inventing some post-structural theory of, of baking beans and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, mint uh, sasanai in the Persia. That's how you get your, uh, your, your tenure. So, so these guys are ignorant. In other words, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a big step up if we replaced current academics with equally ivory tower academics who just have a command of the facts? Yes, but, but how do you select for these? Well, basically in Europe, for example, they have a separation between researchers and uh, the trans, for example. So instructors are supposed to know the curriculum. Actually, they're tested, not, I mean, I think I see all the tested on the subject. So, and the people who produce papers go produce papers that nobody reads and, and put your energy there. And we're going to give you a good lifestyle and some income that's lower middle class, right, for researching. And leave, leave us alone. So this is how we stand it. And then you get, uh, and you get, so people who instruct, tell you, give you history lessons, know actually some history. You don't have that in, 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 the, in a more competitive environment. So I mean, one argument that I made is that almost every student has an intuitive understanding of the signaling model that I'm defending in my book, where I say the main thing you're trying to do is impress employers, not actually learn the material. And uh, here's a passage uh, you know, out from Andy Fragile that is very signaling friendly. So, quote, I wasn't exactly an autodidact since I did get degrees. I was rather a barbell autodidact. Uh, as I studied the exact minimum necessary to pass any exam, Overshooting accidentally once in a while and only getting in trouble a few times by undershooting. Quote. So would you say that you had an intuitive understanding of the signaling model? And really yeah, I know that, that you have getting, the, getting the stamp in your forehead. Exactly. You know, I decided to, to come to, to work, you know, decided to come to business school in America. Why this was very difficult to win. So I said, okay, let me try. What do you have to do? You have to take this test. So what do you do? The test is GMAT or something like that scores. So you go in and you spend the you, you you buy a lot of coffee. You lock yourself up for months taking these, and then you go take the test, right? And, and first of all, you forget right after once you've taken the test, and you go to business school where you realize that business school is mostly a way to meet people, 
Oh, I got to give you a job. The first job after business school. And everybody will forget, you know, that it's Facebook and the double company. And, and then later on, I became an employer when I was employed. And I never had anybody from business school. No one was any so, so signaling. And plus, they come and argue. So you hire someone from, uh, for, for example, you notice there's something. It's, if you went to business school, unless you went to the top 20, at the time it was a waste of money. But in mathematics, if you, you can go to the top 25,000 school, <laughs> number 25,000 is still useful. You see, so you realize that there's some things that can be taught in, in that structure environment, like engineering, mathematics, or chemistry, or I don't know, belly dancing, or stuff like that. So, but in business school, you have no skills, basically. So, so there is a signaling that you discover, but I didn't need the signaling beyond my first job. Right. So we all know you're a maverick, but uh, <laughs> I mean, but. Uh, Suppose that you had undershot very consistently in academics, yes. so you hadn't finished degrees. Do you think you would still be where you are today? No, or, no, no really. This is the problem of society because the way it was organized. First of all, I was Civil War Lebanon. So if, if it weren't, you know, I had a family of money and I had been writing my poetry and that's it. Maybe a failed novel or something. Okay, so, so that would have been my life. That was the of the product, the reaction against war, the anxiety, displacement, you know, uh, the, 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 the moving from, so you have anxiety plus being Christian from the area, you don't know, you know, the, and it's very scary to be Christian from the area, particularly at the time. So, so this is why, so I want to make it, so you want to get the degrees, you want to do this, you want to do that, you want to buy a nice suit, you want, so all the signaling, you have to cover the signaling, and on top of that, have the skills. So, so this is, that was what, what pushed me, and effectively, I am certain that I discovered another thing, that the patemata, matemata, from uh, from antifragile, uh, sorry, from a little less book, I, I, I have an interest in addiction. I'm not that myself, but I had a family member when I was a kid. So discover how smart addicts are at procuring <laughs> money for their addiction, but they're incapable of making money outside of that. Right? So there's like some skill, some kind of gland that comes in and starts producing IQ right, when they want their uh, the drugs. And then they can find these ways to, to make money for the drug, but not elsewhere. So I started thinking about it, and I, and I explained that when I started trading, effectively under the pressure, you're so much in trouble, you have to think. You learn a lot of stuff by probability, right? And you start high-dimensional matrices, we got it inverted you know, by tomorrow morning, and, and you end up inverting it, and then you don't know how to get the result. And you show it to mathematicians, they don't believe you did it, and then you did it. Very much smoke at the time, computer time. So you push to do a lot of stuff under necessity, necessity other invention. And the stuff you do then that you learn under these pressures, you, you stay with you. It's not like a drug addict who loses back these faculties elsewhere. So that was I was explaining how basically war was a way for people to learn stuff. And then effectively a lot of the, the inventions we had came during war, during you know, your, your work is a, and of course the preparation for war. So Got to replace that model. Of course, we're not going to wage war, uh, and, and and figure out how to force people to learn by getting them in trouble. See, and, and another mode of learning to activate, to upregulate something in them that makes them uh, right. So definitely not by making them, uh, putting them in a classroom and giving them credentials. It's got to be something else. Plus, there's another thing about you that I disagree with you on one point. Minor, is that you have your metric to gauge if education is good is performance on the job. But, but so have you evaluated the metric anyway? Yeah, it's a good metric for people who want to become employees. But they're not. The world is not. You know, doesn't. You know, needs people who create things. You see, you need the, the the artisans or people who invent things. Because I have this idea that the, the Bill Gates, uh, as much as I hate him, you know, he's got to create something. Or the Steve Jobs. And, you know, the, the, these are the people who make the engine work, and the other people are just uh, uh, around. So, the, 
for, for these people, again, I mean, we've got to look at these people as a disproportionate part of the sample, not the numericals they take. That is where I disagree. And then my idea, IQ, and I remember when one hired a trader, you would not quiz them on something because you know they all have probably a very high IQ to get there. First of all, we only hire people from math or physics or engineering. So you have some kind of availability. So they all, you give them an SAT test and done it, right? GRE have done it. So what do you get? You start, I mean, the best test is you tell someone, listen, I want a French suit and you have an hour to get it. This is size, this bottle is size, and you have an hour to go get it in New York City. You know? For example, that's the kind of test we give people okay, to see if they can go find that suit, right? Or you give them, you give them projects and tell them, I want you to get me this, 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 and then you have an hour to do it, or two hours, all right? And to see how, first of all, how people get confused at your request. And but this, these are the real IQ tests. Or so possibly so, test of common sense. Psychologists actually do have a whole separate set of common sense tests, which are interesting because common sense is something where people keep improving into their 50s, unlike IQ, where actually these subkinds are getting worse. Um, and, you know, like, so you know, these tests are actually pretty interesting. Uh, you know, like, you know, there's tests like your car breaks down on a mountain road in the middle of the LA on a snowy night. What do you do? And like, like smart 18 year olds give answers that get them killed. And whereas like normal 50 year olds give answers where they survive. And it's like, wow, right? So there is actually something to this idea. No, no, there's, yeah. yeah. There I, I think of getting the suit as, as, uh, as part of the part. Well, a lot of that is actually testing common sense, which is an important, but actually a different kind of skill. But, but that's a central skill you need in uh, yeah, as how you make it uh, through an airport and get me an auntie hand. I like auntie hand, you need to clean this butter, all right? And, and, and 25 minutes to get one. And then no internet at a time, you know, it's not to be a search engine. So, so you, you, these are the tests that, that really will tell you the person going to succeed in, 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 in starting the entrepreneurship. Well, what do we do when the car breaks down? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. So, <laughs> the original tests were actually written before their cell phone. So then it, then it normally involved getting on the other side of the barrier and then walking carefully to a call box. Uh, rather, you know, it was winding out the road. So like, like, like a lot of people say, try to wave down a car, but it's winding out the road. So you get hit by the car. So like get on the other side of the barricade and then very, and holding, holding the barricade, walk, to the call box and then call for help is a pretty good answer to that. Uh, so, totally different question. So, you know, so you know, it seems, seems like you, know, you and I are very much on the same page on you know, spread out, you know, valuing vocational education. There are a lot of academics who say, no, 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 no. Uh, vocational education is no good because you never know if any vocation is going to be wiped out. So, like one of the referees said, oh, should we send them to go to typewriter repair school? That's not the act. And no, you shouldn't send them to typewriter repair school. Now, my answer here is, look, it's better to go and train people for things that seem likely to be useful, like plumbing, than to train them for things we know are not going to be useful, like poetry. So if we know anything about the economy in 40 years, is that poetry will not be a big part of the economy. So, I mean, what do you think about this? Again, there's a separation of things you do to become civilized, the things you do to make money later on, and people conflate one for the other. And to come back, to reiterate, for the moment, geometry, was not something like poetry. It was something you do to, as an intellectual exercise that was not required because it actually degrades the way they made. And conflating the two has actually led to a lot of problems. So the first thing we got to establish is that we have another bigger problem. The bigger problem is, of course, to say, where is the propaganda that we're getting? It looks like the ratio of theories and uh, uh, what you call indoctrination to facts is very high in the humanities. And it's effectively, it stays low in mathematics because you can't really have Although, you know, we have proposals to have 
you know, uh, to remove square root of, uh, square root of uh, minus one because it was too phallic or something. <laughs> and I think it was in Socal's books, but it was a bit mathematics, stuff like that. So you separate these two by institutions that are completely isolated from one another. Okay? The things you do to become civilized, like known the history of Scotland, and uh, things you do uh, uh, for skills. If we bring that back, computer science, accounting, uh, I think in business school, I know there's two classes that were useful for me, uh, law, business law, and accounting. But then these are the need business school for them. You can go get them uh, from... So, and actually, we're, I'm doing something on the side as uh, risk, people who are in the risk business. Uh, myself and a former Renaissance founder, partner, a trainer and a third person, three of us uh, are mathematically oriented client of mathematicians, the three of us, and we're teaching people risk from risk taker standpoint. And the, the demand is, is huge, okay, but, but people want to learn from professionals. <laughs> so you may have a model of accountant teaching accountants. This person teaching that one a certificate that you can get throughout your life rather than have a blocked education and then you go. Uh, to the job market. So to, to me, like uh, the risk business, I treat it like plumbing. It's like being a plumber. It has a lot of stuff. And you can only learn to be a plumber from a plumber. You can't have an English uh, teacher also teaching plumbing. See? So these professions should be insulated from the humanities that they do become civilized. But it doesn't mean that we should eliminate poetry from school. We should have people should do that like you do piano. They take piano lessons. If I can just interject with a question. I'd like a sentence from each of you. What you see is the biggest difference between you is you agree on a lot. But let me give you my one-sentence take on what I heard is the biggest difference. The extent to which you take a kind of shaped civilization for granted is different. So, Brian, you take it for granted. You don't think formal education is so much needed to produce it. And Nassim, you're taking it less for granted in a particular way, and you still see some room for poetry, the humanities, and so on, provided they're treated the proper way and segregated from the actual doing of stuff. Exactly. But each of you give your take. That was my takeaway. That's exactly my take. I, I, I want to separate things you do to be civilized, the liberal arts, from things you do to be effective. And this is why, I mean, I do a lot of mathematics, but I know the mathematics are purely for measure, they're not for anything practical. And of course, I do other technical stuff that are very practical, statistics, stuff like that, and some mathematics, applied math. Like when I, when I play with geometry, I absolutely no practical thing. And I do it like I would with poetry. And so long as you separate these two, you have a barbell, this is this and this is that, and that's that, and you separate the two of them, then you will avoid the, the, the problems we have. And also, you should have the professional stuff okay, taught to children along by professionals of that field. And you should have the, the humanities or stuff taught by people who like that stuff. Yeah, and I would say, you know, so I don't take civilization for granted at all. What I say is that it can't possibly be the case that the uh, that education in liberal arts and humanities is causing civilization or sustaining it, because virtually no one acquires this knowledge. So given that almost no adult can answer even basic questions about this stuff, I don't see how you can say that schools are saving civilization because they aren't achieving the goal that allegedly is required to sustain it. I, I actually agree with you. I think that school at one point, the destroying civilization. As the, the, the destroying civilization, the, 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 the classics. I think we should separate the holy and the profane. And then you should keep things in the holies and the profane. And I think that the, the, they destroyed the Latin language as well as the Catholic Church. One comment again from theology. When they translated the text from Latin or from vulgar Latin into, uh, into uh, vernaculars, 
Okay, because then what did you do? You tried to, to market our religion as something useful, whereas before it was something worldly, it's all thing. And, and you notice that, and that the, the reason the Pope presented, he said, that it's to uh, make uh, increase the number of Catholics, right? In fact, the church contracted at the time, but look, compare it to uh, the Islam, where you have one and a half billion uh, Muslims praying in the they don't understand. So visibly, because, uh, so so you have some exactly the same thing is that it has separated the holy and the profane. Don't make, don't translate the vernacular, uh, the, the the beautiful Latin things. Likewise, do not try to make poetry or or literature or history. Do not make it practical. Just make it that people study it for their own sake. Just like you go to church. It's not for anything practical. Don't go to church because you're going to meet an employer. You go to church. You go to church. All right. And and likewise, so it has a separate these two. Closing statement from you, Ryan. So I've just got one question left. I really desperately want to signal that I did read the appendix. So I have a question about the appendix. Yes, right. Ask right. question and answer. All right. Yes. So uh, you wrote, it is often easier to modify f of x than to get better knowledge of x. Now, when I was reading this, you know, it seems like even the phrasing suggests that we should be weighing the relative ease of modifying f of x and learning about an x case by case. So suppose we're talking about the possibility that something on your phone, that one day you're going to eat something lethally poisoned. All right, now one thing you could do is take a lot of precautions against using poison. You could hire a poison taster, or you could go and read up about what kinds of foods are hard to poison. On the other hand, you could just go and say, hardly anyone today gets poisoned by, by you know, you know, this lethal poison one of their foods, so low probability, and I'm not worried about it. The latter reaction is actually my reaction. Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, should, that, should I be worried about being lethally okay. poisoned or not? <laughs> uh, let me rephrase the FX and X, and then you'll see that it goes right and wrong. So <laughs> what I say is that there's a fundamental problem I noticed in uh, probability and statistics is that people, you take X, X with what will the stock market do tomorrow, and you study the properties of X, instead of study F of X, how it affects you. You can have a payoff, you change the payoff, and, and so X is knowledge, which is exactly the left side, that is one thing, but don't conf conflate the conflation of X, how, how it affects you, F of X. So for example, if you take random events, if F of X is convex, you have optionality, you see, some people have optionality for random effects, some people have negative optionality. It, it, it's technical, but, uh, you know, we have time to explain it, but, but the gist of the point is one of them is knowledge, the other one is how it affects you, what you do with it, you can change it. Like, for example, one of them is what would happen if there's war, and the second one is the insurance contract, F of X, when insurance company puts a clause, it throws my so it doesn't affect them anymore, they put it in a clause. So one of them needs a statistician, the second one is a lawyer. A contract, so you mitigate your risk either by understanding the risk, which is very hard, or by having a lawyer who puts a clause to protect you from that event if it happens. That's F of X. So the idea is that there's a conflation between the two. I'm not saying that we should ignore X or ignore F of X. I'm saying that we should know whether you're dealing with X or F of X, whether are we dealing with a food composition or are we dealing how it affects us. So that's the F of X. So this is how this is my answer. And put it in context of poetry is X, whatever it is. F of X, how it affects us. F of X is a nickname, and X is the episteme. See, and the ancient always separated episteme from technique. The problem is, as society got rich, everybody wanted to reach education by imitating the, the, the aristocrats with the illusion that it's going to help them get rich. Whereas, in fact, it's the kind of thing you do when you're already rich. <laughs> See, and this is where, uh, where Alison Wolf and Richard come in to discover that these educational things are effectively the product of society that are rich and definitely not causative to wealth. Thank you both very much.
Thanks for listening to Conversations with Tyler. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.